This morning, we conclude our 13-part series through the first part of Acts. Some of you say, just 13, it's felt like 26. Um, That's all right. And we've been going through Acts, been looking at really chapters 1, and we're going to conclude today looking at chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles and want to go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 9, we'll be there in just a few moments. You remember when we started this series that we began in a a logical place in the first chapter of Acts, where Jesus, he made a promise to his disciples. And the promise was that he was going to empower his disciples through the gift of the Holy Spirit who was to come, that that gift of the Holy Spirit was going to allow them to continue the mission that he had set them upon. And you remember, what was the the mission? What was the message that Jesus said before he ascends back to heaven that this was their goal? And it was this, that they were to take the gospel. First of all, they were to go back to Jerusalem. Remember, they had just fled from Jerusalem after the crucifixion. And so they they were to go back to Jerusalem where they were hated as followers of Jesus. Then he said, you're going to take the gospel to Judea and Samaria where they hated them. And we talked about that last week, the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. And then he says, you're going to end by taking the message of Jesus Christ and you're going to take it to the uttermost parts of the earth. And in Acts chapter two, we read about the coming of the Holy Spirit. It kind of happened in an an unusual way. But I just don't think that there's any way that those first disciples could have expected or could have in their mind envisioned that this is the manner, this is the way in which the gospel is going to be taken all throughout the earth. Think about the persecution that has occurred from chapters 1 to chapters 9. Think of the hardships. Think of the death that has occurred to Stephen and to others. They've had to flee their homeland. And now in chapter 9, there is no way that the disciples thought that God was going to use the the, the person we're going to talk about today to become a preacher to the Gentiles. And so as we look at Acts chapter 9 this morning, we're going to be in verses 1 through 19. But before we read this passage, I want you to pay careful attention as we read these verses in Acts chapter 9 to two things in particular. The first thing I want you to pay attention to is the manner in which God literally comes and transforms Saul's life. Let's watch and see how God does it. And then on the flip side, I want you to see how is it that Saul, he responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ coming to him in this manner. I think there's no other way to say it than that Saul was converted I hesitate using that word, and I went back and forth on do we use that word. It's kind of an old school word to say that he was converted. But there's really no other way to say it than Saul was converted to faith in Christ. He wasn't just uh, joining an institution or a gathering as it's sometimes seen today. Some people will say, oh, well, you're a Christian because you're a member of a church. That's not what happened to Saul. He didn't just say, well, I'm going to sign a card and I'm going to be a member of the First Baptist Church. God literally transformed Saul's life from the inside out. He was nothing short of a converted to the Christian faith. And if I'm honest with you this morning, I would have to tell you that the largest fear that I have as a pastor of a church of this size, and it's not just because it's this church, it would be any church that has this many members, is I often wonder how many people are fooled into thinking that they're truly followers of Jesus because they've joined a church. They think that when they die that they're going to be welcomed into heaven because they signed a card. 
Because in third grade at Vacation Bible School, they made a decision for Christ. Maybe they were even baptized and they called themselves a Christian, but they're not. So my deepest, most sincere prayer that I have prayed all throughout the putting together of this message, and it's been for several weeks knowing this was going to be kind of the culmination of our series, has been this. That by the end of our time together, not because I've been clever in putting together a message, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, through his written word, that each and every person here today, that when we're done, you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt, with all certainty, whether or not you have paid lip service to saying that I am a follower of Jesus or whether or not you have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's my prayer. So with that, let's look at Acts chapter 9. Let's look at the first few verses, starting in verse 1. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, let's stop right there, the way is what Christians were first called. Before they were called Christians, they were referred to as the way, and it goes back to John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the what? The way, the truth, and the life. So this is how Christians were first called, members of the way. Men or women, it continues, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice right there, what does Jesus ask Saul? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? What's that next word he uses? me. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Did Saul actually hurt Jesus in the flesh? Did Saul even know where Jesus was and say, I'm going to persecute you? No. Who does he persecute? Saul persecutes the church. So what we see here when, when, Paul, when Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? We see that, that Jesus, he does not see the church as we talked about last week as, as an institution. He doesn't see the church as a building. What does he see the church? He sees the church as himself. They are so closely united, the church and Jesus, that he sees them as one and the same. Friends, listen to me closely on this. There is no separation between love for Jesus and commitment to his church. Let me say that again. There's no separation according to God's mind of loving Jesus and being committed to his bride, the local church. Listen to these words in Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride, that's you, that's me, that's his church, has made herself ready. Friends, you cannot love Jesus and not love and be committed to the local church. It's that simple. It, it would be like this. It would be like if you came up to me after the service and you said, Blake, we love all that you do for us. We love the sermons you preach. We love the direction of the church. You're doing a great job. We want to invite you over for lunch after church, but we can't stand your wife. We can't stand Lindsay. You make, she needs to stay home, but you come with us. That ain't going to happen, all right? There's no separation between that, and that's the exact same way Vernon says we would ask Lindsay, not you. Um, I, I understand that. That would be a much better decision as well. Um, 
What we see here, and, and I emphasize this in the series that we went through a few weeks ago, This is the Church, is it's become a popular saying today to say, well, I love Jesus, I just don't really care for the church. I don't care for organized religion, but I'm just going to love Jesus. You can't say that. That's like saying that I don't love the bride of Jesus. They go together. There is no question at all based upon what we read in scripture that you should, if you are a follower of Jesus, you should be very involved in a local church. Now hear me, if you're a guest of ours, I'm not saying it's this church, but there is a church that God has called you to, and I hope it's a Bible-believing church, that God has called you not just to sit and soak, but you should be very involved and active in that ministry because that's what God calls us to do. Let's continue on. Verse five, and he said, who are you, Lord? Saul answers, and Jesus said this, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Isn't that intriguing to think about? Picture this scene. So there's Saul, and he's got some fellow travelers that are going along with him. They're on their way to Damascus, and there's this bright light shining on them. We know that the light is who? Jesus, right? It's always the answer to save. A pastor or Sunday school teacher asks you a question. We know that it was Jesus that was standing there before them, and he starts asking Saul these questions. But what about the people that are with Saul? Do they recognize that it's Jesus? No. They see some kind of light, but all they hear is some kind of noise. They don't understand what's going on. And you say, well, how could that happen? How could Saul know that it was Jesus, hear from Jesus, and everyone else just saw a bright light and heard some noise? The same way that men and women can be a part of the exact same church service. That some people can hear and sense God moving through the music, through the fellowship, through the preaching of his word. They can be a part of a fellowship and they can see the ministries that are taking place all throughout a church. And some people are left transformed by the gospel and they say, man, the spirit of God was in that place. And other people leave and they're not touched at all. All they heard was noise. That's what's happening here. Their hearts weren't attuned to what was going on. In verse eight, it says, so Saul, he rose from the ground. Although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is an incredibly powerful picture of Saul. Saul, for all of his life, he had been known as powerful and mighty. Where was he born? Tarsus, an important city. He was what kind of citizen? A Roman citizen, man, a man's man. He had impeccable Jewish credentials. His teacher was the most sought after rabbi that you could find, a guy by the name of Gamaliel that we read about in a few other um, chapters. And here we have Saul the mighty, Saul the proud being brought low being brought low that now he's on the ground, unable to see that how does he have to get into Damascus? Someone has to lead him by the hand. I love the way Warren Wearsby puts it. He says this, the Hebrew of the Hebrews would become the apostle to the Gentiles. The persecutor would become a preacher and the legalistic Pharisee would become the great proclaimer of the grace of God. Only Jesus could transform in that way. 
By the way, Saul, most people believe, probably got his name from the first king of Israel, Saul. And, and we know that he was a, a mighty figure, and it's about, we're about to see that his name is to be changed from Saul to what? Paul. By the way, the name Paul literally means small. So here we have Saul the mighty, Saul the proud, Saul the man that had everything, had his act together. He's about to become Paul the small. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. Let me, let me try to put this in context for you here. Ananias, by the way, he was a a follower, probably a leader in the church there at Damascus. And so let's just put your feet in um, your your shoe. Let's you walk in in Ananias' shoes for a minute. Let's say that God comes to you as a lay member of the church at First Baptist Decatur. Let's go back five to 10 years. And God comes to you through a vision and says, hey, Matt, I've got Saddam Hussein. And I want him to come to your house. I've got Osama bin Laden. I want him to come to your house. Not only do I want him to come, I want him to stay there with you because I'm about to transform his life. How would you respond to that? And don't miss, what what does the Lord say that Saul is doing all during this time? Verse 11, I believe. Yeah, verse 11. For behold, he's doing what? He is praying. See, prayer is as natural for the person who's following Jesus as breathing is. I love that that the Lord points this out, that Saul is praying. Because no one had to teach him how to pray, did he? He didn't have to go and read a book about prayer. He didn't have to go understand and listen to three sermons about how to pray. He is immediately transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And his first response, his initial response, is to begin praying. I hope that the same could be said of you and of me that people would say, I can tell that he or she is a man, is a woman of God, because they are a praying person. Let's finish it up, beginning in verse 12. It says, and he has seen a vision, and a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must, next key word, suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, interesting that he calls him brother Saul, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight. But not just that, but also what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that important? All through acts that we've seen, the power of the Holy Spirit. And immediately, Something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and immediately what? He was baptized. Now there are three things that I hope that we can take away from the reading of this passage this morning. Three things that I think that we can learn about conversion that we see demonstrated through the life of Saul. Which, by the way, I'm probably going to refer to him as Paul from now on. I get confused going back and forth. So let's just go with Paul. 
Um, I, I think that these three things are as applicable to us today as they were back in, in Paul's day. So three things I want you to know and understand about conversion. Number one, we can see clearly that God pursues us. Did Paul do anything to bring Jesus into his life? No, in fact, he was doing the opposite. He was persecuting against other Christians. And yet there is no other way to say it other than Jesus initiated this encounter with Paul. Later, he's gonna call himself the chief of all sinners, the worst of all sinners. And by that, he's admitting that there's nothing in me that could have saved me. Only God pursuing me could have brought me into this relationship. So let's turn the story to you. Have you felt that maybe God has been pursuing you? Have you felt that maybe God is leading you into a relationship with him, but you keep pushing him away and keeping him at arm's length distance because there's still unanswered questions that you can't have all of your questions fit so we can fit in this box. But you've seen the way that Christians and how they love each other, and you don't understand that. Maybe you've seen the way that Christians can have a sense of joy, even in the midst of trial, there's a family in our church that had a fire on Friday and they lost almost everything. I, I talked to the husband yesterday. He said, we are choosing to believe that God is greater. We don't care about our things. We're trusting and claiming to God. And by the way, they lost everything in their house. Not one Bible was singed. They're choosing to believe that God is even in the midst of that. And maybe you are continuing to resist this relationship with God. If that's so, I believe, listen to me, I believe it's not an accident that you are here today hearing this message. Maybe you felt that God is, is punishing you because you keep resisting him, you keep pushing him away. Let me ask you this question. Do you think that God was punishing Paul by blinding him for three days? Was that God's punishment? See, I choose to believe that was God's way of saying, I am going to draw you near to me, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of hardships. I've heard it put this way before. God's not trying to pay you back. No, he's trying to bring you back. Right now, do you feel those proddings in your life? Don't just keep pushing back against what God is, is trying to draw you into him. He loves you. He desires. He is pursuing you. Even in this moment, the fact that you are here, he's pursuing you and he wants you to have this genuine, authentic, life-transforming relationship with him. The way we know he first pursued us is he sent Jesus on the cross. We couldn't do anything apart from him first taking that first step through sending his son to die for us. The second thing we learn about conversion is that we must recognize that we were once blind. It's obvious here that Paul realized at this moment when this light comes and blinds his eyes that, that he can't see, that physically he's blinded. But Paul doesn't spend the rest of his life talking, hey, let me tell you about this experience. And he doesn't talk for years and years and years about what it was like not to be able to see physically, does he? No, he spends the rest of his life not talking about his physical blindness, but talking about his spiritual blindness. Let me tell you about this time that, that in my life for years I was going against God because my spiritual eyes were closed and I understood that God was pursuing me. You want one surefire way to know whether or not you're a Christian? This is not the only way, but here's a way to know. One way to know whether or not you're a genuine disciple of Jesus is this. Are you aware do you recognize that you were once 
blind. Do you understand that there was a time in your life that you were walking in disobedience to God? You weren't born a Christian, not just because you were born into a Christian family. You have to understand there was a time in my life that I was eternally separated from God. I was spiritually blind, and then I turned and trusted and surrendered my life to Jesus. There are, there are two different types of spiritual blindness that people have today. One blindness, it includes some people who say, I just don't need God. I'm in charge of my life and I can handle it on my own. Now, most people who have this type of blindness say, I'm in control, I'm in charge of my life. They're usually unhappy. They usually wake up at some point in their life and they realize there's no joy, there's no happiness because there's no, um, there's no authenticity in their relationships. They're all fake. By the way, most of these people that say, I, I don't need God, I'm in charge of my own life, most of them think that there's the only reason they're not happy is because of something outside of themselves. There's something external in my life, and if I could just change this, if they would just change, if this situation would just change, then, then I'll be happy. You know these people, don't you? They're always changing jobs. They're always getting new cars or new houses. They're going different places. They're spending lots of money. Maybe they're even joining different churches all the time because they think, if I can just fix this one thing, then finally I'll be happy. The other type of people who are, are spiritually blind are people, and this is who I think would be Saul would fall in this category. They think they can be good enough. They think that if I can just do enough good things, then finally I can earn God's approval. If I try really hard, if I keep all the rules, or if I don't break all these bad rules, according to what my church says, then surely God will accept me, right? God will be happy with me. Listen to me, friends. The only problem with that kind of blindness is if, if we are honoring God, thinking that if we do enough good things that he'll love us, then even when you do, in fact, do things for God, you're really not doing them out of unselfish motives, are you? If that's your motivation, you're really doing out of selfish gain because I want the benefit because I want God to do this for me if I do this. And that's not what we're after in the first place. So what's the cure to this blindness? Both the blindness that says that, that I don't need God, I can do it on my own, and the blindness is that if I can do enough good things that God will truly accept me. The cure is the same thing. The cure is what the choir sang about a few minutes ago. It's God's grace. You say, what's grace? I love the way that Jerry Bridges in one of his books, he, he says this. He says, grace is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him. First thing we must recognize about grace is we don't deserve it. There's not enough good in us that says, oh, well, now God should give me his grace. It's a gift in every sense of the word. When I was a teenager and I was in the youth group in my church in Kentucky, my youth minister used to always say this. And by the way, I know he didn't come up with it. I know it's, it's been around for a long time. It's an acronym, G-R-A-C-E. You know what I'm going to say? God's riches at Christ's expense. It's an easy way to remember grace. Grace is something that God gives me purely because of his goodness, not because I can earn it, not because I deserve it. He blesses me at his, all that he has, all the blessings of heaven that he gives me those because he chooses to, but it's not free. Don't say that grace is free. It came at a high cost and we are given grace because Jesus paid the price for you to receive these blessings of grace. See, as soon as Paul experienced this, this transforming, life-changing grace, 
He was filled with a sense of wonder and amazement. How long did that wonder and amazement last? For the rest of his life. He never got over the fact of what Jesus did for him. It never got old. The choir said that I, every day I fall down on my knees because I'm amazed that God would still love me. I'm amazed that God would still choose to allow me to be a part of his kingdom plan. Paul didn't spend the rest of his life trying to, to earn or deserve God's grace. He knew there was nothing he could do to earn it. But what did he do? He tried to live the rest of his life in response to this grace, in response to this wonder and amazement that he had. And here's my question. I wonder if we individually, and I'll speak for the church, have we as a church, have we lost the wonder and the amazement of God's grace? Have we lost sight of what God has truly rescued us from? A pastor by the name of D. Martin Lord Jones, he talks about this wonder and this amazement of grace and listen to this quote he made. The ultimate test of our spirituality is our amazement at the grace of God. The ultimate test of our spirituality is our amazement at the grace of God. There's so much truth in that statement. You see, for so many of us, we incorrectly think that our spiritual maturity, that our growth in Christ, that it's found in what we do, that if we are becoming more spiritually mature, then we're going to pray longer, we're going to give more, we're going to be more patient. And yes, those things are natural results of that. But if that's the only thing it takes to be growing spiritually, then Saul, before he was Paul, he was a picture of perfection, wasn't he? He was a religious person. In fact, he says, I kept all 600 of the laws. But instead, what we know is that Christian growth, it's not getting to a place where we think that we no longer need God's grace because now I'm so good, because now I do so many things. No, you know you're growing as a Christian when you continually get to the place where you grow in more and more amazement and in wonder of the fact that God continually gives you his grace day after day after day. And we can do nothing else. Like God, I don't understand it, but thank you. Have we lost that sense of of wonder and amazement at what God has done for us. Paul never did. That's why even towards the end of his letters in 1 Timothy, he refers to himself as Christ Jesus. He came into the world to save the sinners. And he says, of whom I am the foremost. There's one other thing I want you to see about Paul that happened to him as a result of, of receiving God's grace. This is something that I think should happen in every single follower of Jesus who truly is converted, who truly is transformed by the gospel of Jesus, not just joined a church or said they're a Christian. Here's what happened to Paul. Watch this. Instead of being known as a man who was filled with hatred and pride, that's who Saul was, Hatred and pride. What do we know Paul as? Hatred and pride? No, we know Paul today as a man of kindness and generosity. How many times have we read 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, which is read all the time at weddings, which by the way has nothing to do with marriage, but I, I digress. But we read these words in 1 Corinthians 13 about love, and we remember these were words written by a murderer. These were words written by someone who's main goal in life was to what? Destroy, stamp out the Christian 
the Christian church. And he says what? Love is kind. Love is patient. Love bears all evil. Love, love is in all things. That's what he says. See, Jesus didn't just come into Paul's life and say, okay, stamp, you went from hell to heaven. Now you're going to spend eternity in heaven. No, no, no. When Jesus invaded Paul's life, it changed his nature. It changed his heart. It changed his character. My question is, has the grace of God come and given you a new nature? Has it given you a new character? Has it transformed your actions? Has it transformed your thoughts that you are a a new person because the old is gone, the new has come, and now we are transformed in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Not only did Jesus have a heart of compassion towards other people, He spends the rest of his life talking about himself as a small man, the chief of all sinners, the recipient of God's amazing grace. And listen to how he explains this grace to the church at Ephesus. When he's trying to explain, let me me tell you what this grace is. He says this, for it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Listen to this. This is what Paul tells them, and it's what Paul would tell us today. Don't miss this. He says, guys, listen. You don't have to be good at being good to earn salvation. Why? Because salvation has nothing to do with what you do for God. Salvation has everything to do with what Christ has done for you on your behalf so that you can be the recipient of God's grace. He goes on to say this. He says, grace, it's not a result of works. Why? So that no one can boast. Paul recognized that God had been pursuing him. He recognized that there was a time that he was spiritually blind. And the final thing I want you to see that that Paul understood and that I hope you understand is that your past does not disqualify you from grace. Not only that, it doesn't keep you from being used by God in the future. And I think all of us to that would say amen, right? Praise God that our past doesn't keep us from God, first and foremost, saving us, but secondly, him using you even today. You say, well, pastor, you have no idea what I used to do. You have no idea the sins in my life. I present to you this morning, exhibit A, Saul of Tarsus, a murderer, a lead persecutor in the church, a man whose goal in life was to stamp out Christianity who we know today as one of the greatest Christians to ever live, who wrote more books of the Bible than anyone else. You know, the most well-loved hymn in every hymnal, whether it's the Baptist hymnal, Methodist hymnal, Presbyterian hymnal, is what? What's the best loved hymn? Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace written by a man by the name of John Newton. John Newton was a former slave trader. The gospel of Jesus came to him and he was radically transformed. He never got over the grace that was displayed to him that he wrote these words. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved what? A wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Today, there's an effort in some hymnals to replace the phrase, saved a wretch like me, to change it with that he saved and strengthened me. You say, why do they do that? That, Some people say, oh, that's too offensive to call anyone a wretch. We don't need to talk in that kind of language about a person. Friends, here's the truth. 
The truth is that the Bible teaches that you and I, guess what? We were a wretch. We were dead in our sins. We weren't sick. We weren't tired. We were dead. We didn't need to be saved. We didn't, I mean, we didn't need to be strengthened. We needed to be saved. We needed to be brought to life. Sometimes I'm afraid that when we use that word saved, again, it's kind of like the word converted. We think as if it's just kind of old school again. But there's not a more accurate word for me to use, even in 2018, to say that Jesus still saves, that Jesus still rescues, that Jesus still transforms. You say, what does he save us from? Jesus saves you from an eternal separation from him. Jesus saves you from a life lived with no purpose. Jesus saves you from a life void of genuine joy. And here's the thing, friends. If you were not a wretch, if I was not a wretch, then God's grace is not that amazing. And this is what I'm afraid has happened to so many Christians. It's what I'm afraid has happened to so many churches is that we've lost sight of how lost we once were. We've lost sight of how eternally separated we were. We weren't just bad people. We were enemies of God. We were eternally separated from God. And God in his love and his grace and his goodness, he reached down through the grace of Jesus Christ. He rescued us up from the mire, from the pit of sin. And he saved us so that now we can receive the inheritance, the righteousness of Christ. And if we forget what God has saved us from, no wonder we're not amazed at what God continues to do every day through his grace in our lives. So let me end the message with this. Let me end this series, as I've tried to in all the other messages, with the two questions that we can ask ourselves as a result of this passage. The first question is just for our church family. It's just for those of us here in this room that have committed our lives, that we've surrendered our lives to Jesus. Here's the question. Have I lost the wonder and the amazement of God's grace? See, I think in the church, we have a tendency to be like Ananias. Ananias was a great person. He obeyed God eventually, but he doubted him at first, didn't he? But God, I've heard all of these things. His initial response wasn't, oh, sure, God, if that's what you're gonna do, I'm, I'm gonna go. No, he lost a sense of the fact that, well, sure, God could do that. Has the same thing happened in our life? Have we lost the sense of wonder and amazement of what God has done for us? And the second question is for all of us here today. And that is, have I surrendered my life to Jesus? Not have I signed a card. Not do I call myself a Christian. Have I, listen to this word, surrendered my life to Jesus? Do you see that God right now at this very moment, he is pursuing you. It's not by chance or coincidence that you are here today. Do you understand that you've been blind for so long thinking that your good works could earn you a spot into heaven? Thinking that you will get to heaven and God will say, well, your good outweighs your bad. Sure, come on in. But right now, do you understand that God wants to save you? Do you understand that just like Paul, your past doesn't disqualify you from being saved from God, doesn't disqualify you from being used by God and his church? Listen to me, friends. Christ does not call you to follow him and continue on in your lifestyle. He calls you to surrender your life to him. And when you surrender your life to him, you are transformed from the inside out. It should change the way that we live. Do you believe that God can save you? 
Friend, right now, listen to the words of Jesus. This last verse, and I'm going to close. The words of Jesus in the last chapter of the Bible. And I beg you to respond to the words of Jesus. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let those who hear say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Salvation is offered to each and every one of us. Is it free? Absolutely not. It cost his one and only son his life. What are the demands of us? That we take our clenched fist and we unclench them and say, God, I'm giving you my life. Transform me. Use me in any way that you see fit because you are the only thing worth living for. Would you pray with me? Dearly Father, we thank you for your patience. We thank you that you continue to pursue us even when we reject you. First and foremost, when we reject you as Lord and Savior. But also for those of us who are your children, we continue to keep you at an arm's length away when you call us, when you tell us clearly to obey your word and we continue to resist you. But Lord, I pray right now, if there's someone here in this room today, They've never trusted you as Savior. Maybe they think they've done enough good things. Maybe they think that their deeds would earn them a place in heaven. Lord, I pray that today your Holy Spirit would convict them in ways that only he can. That today, each and every one of us, when we lay our heads on our pillow tonight, we have a a certainty beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have been saved by the grace of Jesus because we turned our life over to you. Holy Spirit, would you work on our hearts? Would you work on our lives so that each and every day we would look more like your son, Jesus? For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.